So it's uh, Avi Ratnanesan here, CEO of NHS, and I'm here with Susan Frampton, President of Plaintree International. Susan, thanks so much for your time, for uh, being very generous with uh, supporting us with this interview for our book on um, uh, interview, um, transforming patient-centered care and person-centered care and the patient experience. We're here at this beautiful uh, apartment or, or sort of hotel room in uh, Orlando at the Plain Tree International Conference. Uh, Susan, thanks for making the time. Oh, absolutely. As you can imagine, this is something I love talking about. So, yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Susan, you know, it, it, you know, you've done so much over now a couple of decades, three decades now, is it? Actually, this is Plain Tree's 41st year wow. as an organization. We were founded in 1978 by one patient. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. And, and in that time, you know, how, how do you think things have evolved for you? I know it's a big question, but how, how have you seen sort of the organization evolve over time? I, I would say probably uh, there are a couple of pieces of the evolution that have been striking. When, when Plain Trees first started, it was U.S.-based. It was in San Francisco. It was mm-hmm. a lot of sort of out-of-the-box thinkers wanting to turn the whole power pyramid in healthcare on its head mm. and look at things instead of from the healthcare professional perspective, from the patient and family perspective. Mm. And to say, what if we gave patients and families more of the power here? What would healthcare delivery look like? Mm. So they started literally with five pilot sites in five hospitals on the West Coast, and right. one, actually four on the West Coast, one in New York City. Mm. And then from there, it just started to grow and just take on this uh, really kind of a movement mm. of change mm. in improving on quality and care delivery and mm. beginning to realize top quality healthcare is not just about good clinical outcomes. Mm. It's about how people feel yeah. about the care that's being delivered to them, how mm. they're treated mm. as human beings. Mm. And so I think we've seen that concept be embraced mm. and embraced not just from a philosophical perspective, but also from a practical perspective of mm. this is how you can actually do it. Mm. And based on that, we've just seen this movement grow exponentially. Mm. So today, for instance, we've got active projects at about 800 clinical sites in 20-some countries, mm. and we're not only working in acute care anymore, which mm. was the beginnings of Plain Tree. Mm. We have wonderful coalitions working together in long-term care. Mm. I was just speaking uh, with one of our staff members about a seven long-term care center coalition in New Brunswick, Canada. Mm. Uh, And so long-term care is really Mm. embracing this and primary care Mm. as well. And I think some of this is the pressure, well, you know, there are different pressures. There's pressures, you could say, around competition in a healthcare system like the U.S., Uh, But then there's also, I think, almost a competition to stay on the very leading edge of healthcare quality trends. And so, for instance, right now, we're seeing a lot of activity in Australia, in the Middle East, Mm. um, in uh, Malaysia, in uh, Latin America. And I think they're, you know, they're looking at this and saying, oh, yeah, this makes total sense. Yeah. We need to be a part of this movement. We need to be supporting this because yeah. our patients and families deserve this same level of care. Mm. So mm. I think that expansion. Yeah. Uh, and, and then we're also now beginning to see it taken more seriously at a policy level. Mm. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm most up to speed on U.S. policy. But, for yeah. instance, I sat on a plenary 
just last week in Washington, D.C. with a group of mm. uh, folks talking about advanced payment models. And, you know, in right. the United States, it's still fee-for-service. Yes. We're moving toward value-based care. That's right. And my role is to make sure that we don't lose sight of what's most important to patients and families. Yes. And how do we really make this a patient-centered, a person-centered healthcare delivery system mm. and tie that to reimbursement because mm. that motivates yeah. people. Right. Mm. So we're, you know, we talked a lot about shared decision making, which to me is mm. a foundation of person-centered care. Openly sharing information, openly sharing options, making sure people understand what these decisions and the implications of those decisions are on their mm. own health and well-being. Mm. But unless you have a system that is paying for that, yeah, it doesn't happen, mm. and it hasn't been happening. And yes. I, I wouldn't say I know of any country that's really done a fantastic job yet mm. of true transparency, true partnership between patients and their providers, yeah. and embraced things like yeah. shared decision-making. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, this is sort of, you're thinking really ahead now yeah. in terms of health systems and health systems transforming around um, shared decision-making and then building that into payment models. Right. Right. I don't think any. I haven't heard of anyone even thinking like that. Where where is the thinking at on that? You know. Um, well, I, again, I think because there's been so much more discussion and yeah. focus on the concepts of person-centeredness and patient experience, and yeah. we've got more and more measurement taking place yes. now. Yeah. And when you have that measure, yeah. and then you publicly report those sorts of things, whether yeah. it's you know, it's HCAPs and patient experience yes. data or yeah. it's patient engagement and activation data. Mm. It begins to get more attention. Yes. And, again, you, if you really want system change, yeah. you've got to look at what are the levers to yeah. make that happen, not just yeah. in this one little hospital or this one little healthcare center. Yeah. How do you take it to a national or an international level? Yes. And so we know that the levers in the U.S., it's around yeah. payment. Yeah. It's around providers and mm. how their time is used. Mm. And we've got to figure out how to pull those levers to make this really happen. Mm. Now, I would imagine mm. there are other sets of levers in other healthcare systems yes. that can be sort of pulled to, yeah. to help push things forward. Yes. Uh, so. Yeah. Because I think in, in the U.S., um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's something like 2% of reimbursement is tied to uh, even the doctors or the physicians' uh, remuneration. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who is a, a doctor here in the mm -hmm. U.S. In, in Tampa, and he was saying how um, part of the remuneration uh, to all the doctors um, is, is linked with that the HCAP score. Right, uh, it, it is. It's, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a tiny percentage, yes. but it is a percentage. Yes. So it's it's patient experience. It's also clinical outcomes. Yeah, as obviously mm. that would be a part of that as well. Yeah. So we're you know we're again we're we've been expanding the mm. concept of quality and yeah. what quality should embody. Yeah. And so it's wonderful that yeah. we've tied something like HCAPs. You know, I would say HCAPS is a work in progress, yes. and there's still a lot of work, I think, that For needs sure. to be done on how do you really measure the most important things to patients. Mm. I, you know, I, I think maybe some of those questions captured, but I think there's a whole lot more. Mm. And more and more, what I find myself and others talking about is patient engagement and patient mm. activation. Okay. That what we need to get to in mm. our healthcare system is a system that actively engages patients in their own decisions, in their own care, as members of their care teams. Mm. Uh, understanding that 
that may not be for everyone yeah. right now. Yes. Uh, and I will say, for I, I often think about family examples because we all yeah. have families. And yeah. I know my dad doesn't want anything to do with making decisions for himself mm. around health care. Yeah. Uh, but I do. Yes. And my children do. Mm. And so it's it's setting things up so that you have that option mm. and you are encouraged to take that option because yeah. it's also around personal accountability yeah. for your own health yeah. as well. Mm. It's interesting. Just, you know, you're saying shared decision making is the foundation of, of person-centered care. And, you know, we're seeing um, one of our states in Australia um, putting more emphasis on shared decision making uh, in terms of its sort of frameworks and uh, implementation. You know, in, in the context of shared decision making, do you tend to see that as being in the consultation between the patient and the doctor, or is it at the bedside, or where, where do you see examples of Well, yeah. I, I actually think that's a great question, yeah. because right now, I think mm. in most people's minds, it's happening in consultation mm. before decisions are made about your treatment plan. Okay. I actually think it, we need a multi-pronged approach, okay. and we need to look at every potential avenue mm. to use shared decision aids in these conversations. Yeah. And I think it doesn't only have to rest uh, as a responsibility for physicians. Yeah. I, I think we need all members of the healthcare team, including mm. community health workers, including, uh, frankly, families. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had shared decision-making conversations with my parents. Yeah. And we had a much better outcome and much yeah. more appropriate use of care based mm. on our conversation. Yeah. So the, I think there's an opportunity to educate and equip families, uh, individuals to do this, mm. uh, again, uh, all members of the healthcare community. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's how we're going to get to where we need to do this because mm. it's, you know, it's too late mm. uh, often when these conversations take place. If, yeah. if somebody's already an inpatient in a hospital mm. and about to go in for some sort of an intervention or a surgical mm. procedure, it's mm. kind of too late to have a shared decision making conversation mm. and say, well, let me lay out your options, yeah. and this is maybe why you wouldn't want to do this or you would. Yeah. People need a little more time to process mm. than that. So if, if we could get this to be more of a, just a, a normal, usual, and customary part mm. of the interactions that take place mm. between primary care providers or community health workers yeah. uh, and you know, patients mm. and, and community members, mm. I, I think yeah, the earlier... We the, do it. The, the earlier we do it, the better. Yeah. Do you do you see anyone doing that well at the moment? Do you see any organizations or any groups or any particular examples? Yes, actually, mm. uh, there was an article in BMJ earlier this year. Mm. I can probably get you the reference for it. Mm. And they profiled a 380-bed community hospital in the Netherlands. Okay. Who, over the last five years, has made it a focus. Mm. Uh, to adopt and use as many shared decision aids as possible. And my understanding is now they have 25 decision aids in active use. Yeah, right. And they focus on everything from gallbladder surgery to breast cancer to prostate uh, health. And just in terms of gallbladder surgery, they brought the number of surgeries down by 13% and their overall costs down by 17%. Right. Simply by implementing shared decision making. Wow. And their their model, uh, the motto of the hospital is better care through less care. 
mm. which I think is really, I, I mean, that's, it, it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. And, and let me just share this story because this, yeah, this really helped uh, me to better understand where we're at as a, you know, collectively as citizens of, of mm. whatever society we may be in. Yeah. So my mom had a stroke 10 years ago. Mm, so, yeah. And I was on vacation with my three sisters, or mm. my two sisters, the three of us, and my mom. Mm. She had a stroke. She, we ended up in a hospital out of state, mm. and on day three, mm. the doctor came in to talk about discharge that would, was going to happen the next day. Mm. And my sister, who's a very well-educated, very bright person but doesn't work in healthcare, mm. was horrified. Mm. And she said, oh, my gosh, it's too early to, to let her out of the hospital, and she's safer here, yeah. and I'm really yeah. concerned. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand, mm. Tracy. The most dangerous place for her right now is in the hospital Mm. because every day she's here Mm. the potential for a hospital inquired infection just you know increases and increases Mm. she'll be fine yeah we'll you know we'll work together on the discharge plan Mm. and the treatment plan afterwards Mm. but the best thing we can do is get her out of the hospital yeah but most people have no idea That that may be the riskiest place for them to be. That's right. Because we don't like to talk about that. That's right. You know, we don't want to. And I realize there's this balance that we have to achieve between scaring people and being transparent and honest with Mm. them. But, Mm. you know, my feeling is we've had a patronizing healthcare system really globally for Mm. way too long. Yeah. And with the availability of information on the internet, and the availability of patients and people to go on and talk to other people who have had similar problems. I just think it's time for us to say, hey, let, let's get a little more serious about this. Let's yeah. get more honest about this. Let's educate the public about the risks yeah. and what their options are and how they can limit their risks and yeah. the reality of their day-to-day lives and what's going to work best for them. Yeah. The, you know, the other thing, the other quote that came out of that article that I mentioned, the BMJ, yeah. uh, I think it was the hospital administrator said something like, you know, very interesting that you find that when you take the time for discussion mm-hmm. and decision-making with patients, mm-hmm. many more of them opt for quality of life over having a surgery done yeah. in order to maybe extend the quantity. Yeah, yeah. So I, mm. I, I think he really hit yeah. at a very important point. Yeah, yeah. So. Because I think people, um, as you said, don't fully understand the... The, the risk of the procedure, potential yeah. complications, right. uh, and so on. And so they think that the procedure might be a fix um, to, to all the worries, but then you know, don't have a clear understanding of what that quality right. of life might be afterwards. Right, right? exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, yeah. Look, that, that, that's very interesting. And um, you know, what do you think, you know, you're seeing, you, you work a lot with, with leaders uh, and, and leaders in this space. You know, in, in your experience, what do you see as... Either some of the traits of those leaders or some of the initiatives that those leaders have put in place to, to make the more successful change, uh, in, either in hospitals or health services. Yeah. Well, you know, interestingly, I've, I've seen a few patterns uh, mm. emerge in leaders who tend to embrace this type of philosophy. And, and one is many of them have had their own challenges personal challenges, okay. either themselves or a family member with the healthcare system, yeah. that has opened their eyes mm. to what it's like to be on the receiving end. Mm. And 
it's given them that aha moment of yeah. oh this this really could and should be a whole lot better. Mm. So I think that's that's one thing. Mm. Yeah, the other thing I will say is when I look at for instance the and I'll just talk about hospitals now. Yeah, okay. The hospital CEOs of of Plain Tree affiliated organizations yeah. are uh, there's a higher percentage of female CEOs. Okay. So I, I don't know if that's something about the our you know our philosophy of care, which is caring, kindness, respect, mm. that everyone's a caregiver. Yeah. Uh, that is maybe easier for women to to feel that they can espouse and support. Mm. I, I'm mm. not exactly sure, but that that's been another thing that I've seen. Mm. Uh, and that is not to say that there aren't many wonderful guys that yeah. are hospital CEOs that yeah. also can get behind this. Uh, so I, I think that that, and I think that the third thing is, mm. it's often the leaders in an area, mm. you know, that truly understand that broader concept of quality, that mm. it's not just about, do you get a patient out of surgery without an infection? Mm. You know, that mm. it, it's deeper than that. It's yeah. about human connection. Mm. It's about relationship. Yeah. And that that extends not only between the doctor and the patient, but coworker to coworker and CEO to, to all of the folks that they have any influence on in terms of the people that work in their, yeah. their settings. Mm. So I, I think of them as sort of more, I don't know, uh, kind of visionaries, but mm. people who are more open. They're just, you know, they're... Yeah. 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 There's an openness to thinking a little bit more broadly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I've seen sort of similar... It's almost like I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Like I, ha- I have those people yeah. in my mind in, yeah. in terms of some of the people that, that I've worked with. I, I always think about how can you reverse engineer <laughs> that process for more people? Um, because obviously we can't force them to go through the health system as a patient. That's almost an accident right. uh, when that happens for them yeah. or, or a family member. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't choose between male or female. You know, that's, a, right. that's already done to you. Um, but, you know, it's how do you, how do you build that um, awareness of that broader concept of quality? And obviously there's the certification process and yeah. so on. But how do you do that at a, at a behavioral uh, levels so people get well, it. Well, you know. yeah, I, I would say that's definitely one of the challenges that we mm. take on when we, we begin to work with a healthcare provider organization. Yeah. Mm. And what we strive for through a, a process, we call it the, the retreat process, so mm. it's a patient-centered kind of immersion yeah. experience. Yes. And we ask that groups of 20 to 25 workers go off-site together, always a mixed group, so mm. it didn't at some point includes the CEO and the C-suite folks and yeah. docs and the folks working in housekeeping and food service. Mm. So it's always meant to be a mixed group. Yeah. And we use experiential learning mm. to put people in the shoes of the patient and mm. to try to help them to not just get it with their head, but to understand it with their heart, what it feels like yeah. to be a patient. Yeah. Um, and so... For example, I'll, I'll tell you when I, I mean, I went through this process mm. and when I first started with Plain Tree 19 years ago, I went mm. to a Plain Tree mm. retreat mm. and one of the exercises midday was we were assigned, we had a buddy, it was sort mm. of like having your own, you know, mm. care coach or, or mm. your nurse or what have you. Mm. 
And at lunch, we had a silent lunch, mm. and we had to take turns feeding each other. Mm. And, and then afterwards, we debriefed that. Right. So imagine how incredibly uncomfortable yeah. that is, right? Mm. One of the first things we, we learn is, as toddlers is to feed ourselves, right? Yeah. We want to feed ourselves. Yes. Now, in hospitals, often patients are fed. Adults are fed by other adults. We do other things that are equivalent to that that make people feel uncomfortable, disempowered. Yeah. And we don't even think about it anymore. It's hard to even see it anymore. Yeah. So we use exercises like that mm. to help people in healthcare understand this is what it feels like to be on the receiving end. Mm. So now keep that keep those glasses on and look at the work that you do. Yeah. And what could you change? How could you make your patients feel a little more comfortable mm. and a little more empowered. Yeah. You know, what, what small controls can we give back to them? Mm. So I, that, that's really the way that we've tried to approach that challenge of how mm. do you get people on board mm. who maybe haven't had personal experiences uh, with the system before. That, that's really interesting. So, so um, people at Plaintree do this exercise when yeah. they join the organization? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, people yeah. at Plaintree do it, and mm. then we go out and every organization we work with, we do it for them, yeah. and we train some of their staff to then do it for everyone in the organization. Yeah. So the idea is everyone gets this collective experience of, yeah. ooh, this is what it feels like. Yeah to be a patient. Yes. All right, I, I need to be thinking differently now about what, what can I do yes. to make it better. Mm. Yeah. You would call that part of the orientation process or recruitment? Uh, um, well, we, we think yeah. it, it's, I, well, and it is often board, uh, it, it is often built into onboarding built into for onboarding. organizations now. Once mm. they, you know, they take their existing staff through it, it's often now part of the orientation process. Mm. So yes, uh, many of the, Affiliates that we have use that as a part of orientation now. Right, fantastic. Um, one of the uh, things that um, I, I noticed when you when we look at the, the plain tree model and certification, there's also an emphasis on integrative health and well-being, um, which is really interesting because uh, often we we don't think like that when we're thinking purely immediate, you know, acute care, right, high right. clinical outcomes, um, and you know, we I was thinking about some of the aspects that, that I'm seeing around mindfulness, meditation. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, even Google has a program for that. They call Search Inside Yourself. Mm -hmm. um, can you expand a bit more on how that came about and, and you know, how that came into the person-centered care approach? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, think about it. When Plain Tree started, mm. it was the 1970s in San Francisco. Okay. There was a, it, that was just a hotbed of new ideas and sort right. of the, the beginnings also of new age approaches to all yeah. sorts of things. Mm. And I think that people were beginning to realize there's a problem in the healthcare system where, you know, we're dealing with people in this very sort of impersonal way, even though we're doing the most personal things you could ever do to someone. Mm. And so we had, on the one hand, we had medical science training people to, yeah. you know, inject people and cut people and do this and that. Yeah. And we had lost the human skills yeah. of just, you know, touching someone mm. or, you know, putting your hands on their shoulders or giving mm. someone a, a massage or, mm. you know, really the, the, the power of healing touch. Yeah. 
And so the founders of Plain Tree thought, wow, you know, that is something that we need to get back into healthcare because patients are missing that. Mm. And patients were essentially voicing that yeah. when a lot of the early focus groups were done uh, when Plain Tree first started. People were saying, oh, you know, the yeah. only time anybody ever touches me in the hospitals when they came in to take blood or you know hook me up to an IV. Mm. No, you know, there's just no human touch. Mm. And so we wanted to make it more acceptable to do that. And mm. there are all sorts of wonderful complementary medicine uh, modalities yeah. that do somehow involve uh, yeah. you know, whether it's healing touch or it's Reiki or it's some of these other you mm. know, meditation. Uh, so just things that are good compliments to yeah yeah how do you see that received uh, you know it, it, is it new for many organizations or have they been doing it a long time or uh, it's you know, it's a it's mix. mix i think that yeah. there are some organizations that have done a wonderful job of incorporating it i think mm. of one of our affiliates mm. out in colorado longmont hospital they have a whole center for integrative therapies they're on their hospital campus right it's very usual for patients to get massage therapy or reiki or you mm. know uh, be taught meditation techniques. They have you know, music programs, so it's mm. very much integrated. And then there are other hospitals where mm. the patients don't seem to either want it, need it, or ask for it as much. So yeah, okay. it it really varies. It really varies. I think there's probably more openness to it now than there was, you know, twenty thirty years ago. Mm. Uh, yeah. Question around um, you know implementation. So uh, we talked a, a little bit about you know. Um, you can have um, CEOs in management that have a vision and they uh, put in place these person-centered principles, they start implementing. It's a, it's a long sort of multi-year journey. What do you think are, are some of the major barriers to, to that journey? You know, what have you seen really trip people up along the way? Uh, I think there's a couple of things. I think, uh, I think sometimes people feel like they're already doing it. Yeah. So we don't really need to take this seriously because we're already patient-centered. We're already person-centered. Mm. And I would, I would both agree and disagree. I would say, yeah, I think many, many people, most people go into healthcare, who go into medicine or nursing or a health profession, go in because they mm. are person-centered. Yeah. And they want to be of service to their fellow human beings, mm. and that's wonderful. Mm. The challenge is we're not all very skilled at taking that intention mm and making it observable mm. and making it felt by patients. Mm. I mean, everybody talks about, oh, that, you know, that unhappy nurse or that unpleasant doctor yeah. or this or that. So obviously people with good hearts and good intentions are not yeah. always effective at communicating that. Yeah. And I think that is a challenge that we can be helpful with. Mm. Uh, so. so I think that's... That's, that's one of the barriers. Is you have to you have to be able you have to be willing to say we could do better here. Yes. And once people are open to that, mm. that really sort of is helpful. It opens the door to a lot of new mm. learning. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think maybe the other thing is impatience. Impatience. Yes, okay. Yes. That we are living in a world mm. of immediacy. Mm. Everybody wants things fixed yesterday. Yeah. Everybody wants their scores to go up yesterday. Yeah. And we're, we're too much in this mentality of, well, what happened in the last quarter? Or what happened yeah. in the last six months? Or yeah. what happened in the last 12 months? And, and that's about as far out as we're willing to go. Yeah. 
and again, I, I said this earlier, when you're yeah. talking about organizational culture change, yeah. that's a multi-year process. That is not an overnight process. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I was speaking with, um, speaking with a colleague a couple weeks ago, and they were asking about how long does this take? Yeah. And we were talking about one of our... Uh, one of the organizations, very influential organization that will be recognized uh, mm. later this week, reaching mm. gold certification. So Johns okay. Hopkins Hospital, which okay. is, yeah, fantastic. I, I assume yeah. this won't go out before that gets announced, no, no, so that'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they, and the, this person said to me, so how long has it taken them to mm. get certified? Yeah. And I said, five years. Mm. It's been a five-year journey. For Johns Hopkins. For yeah. Johns Hopkins. Yeah. I mean, they're an excellent, excellent organization, but they brought in a visionary chief patient experience officer five years ago yeah. who uh, you know, built on the foundation of work that had been done around the language of caring resources, yes. the advancing physician communication, communicating yeah. empathy, yeah. and they began to use the plain tree certification framework mm. to build on that. Mm. And they, they have a wonderful network now of patient and family partnership councils, so they've got patient representatives on so many different committees, mm. so they're really very close to the patient voice. They've, do, they've made wonderful inroads. Mm. And yeah, five years later, they, ju- they had their certification uh, visit last month, and yeah, so, so it takes time. It takes so time, So that's yeah. the other thing. You've got, to, you've got to be in this for the long run. Yeah, yeah. be in it for the long run. Yeah. And a lot of this is... It's kind of attitudinal rather than purely structural, right? It's you've got to get the mindset right around. That's this the harder genre. part. Yeah. Yeah. The mm. structures are almost the easy part mm. because I mean, you can look at a charter for a patient family uh, partnership council and understand. All right, this is who I need to invite, and these are the types of projects that they'll work in, and this is you know. Yeah. Here's how we'll get people to the table. Yeah. But changing people's attitudes. Yeah. That is much more subtle, and that's yeah. where things like that retreat process that I talked about are yes. essential. Yes. Because I don't believe that you can just train people to do this. People have to, they, I think they have to have some emotional engagement. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You have to create that uh, yeah. emotional engagement. No, it's very, very interesting. I mean, um, I'm, I'm going to flip the other way, mm-hmm. and you know, just in terms of. Uh, KPIs, you know, key performance indicators, and you talked about financial incentives. So, part of this is uh, what I find really interesting in this space is it's multifactorial. Mm-hmm. Some of it is mindset, soft skills. Some of it is KPIs, incentives. Yeah. I mean, are there any sort of metrics that you tend to advocate for? And, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, as a part of the certification, there is sort of an outcomes piece to that. The mm. challenge is that. If you look internationally, there aren't glo- there aren't consistent global metrics, but right. we do uh, look at outcomes on staff engagement surveys. So we want to see what are the trends in staff engagement because okay. if you're doing a good job with implementing person-centered care, you should see those trend up. Yeah, we look at recruitment and retention statistics right. for the same reason. Yeah, we look at scores on whatever patient experience or patient satisfaction survey instruments are being used within that either that country or that region or that organization because sometimes it comes down uh, Mm. to that granular of a level Mm. Uh, we look at clinical outcomes Mm. Uh, so you know we we have sort of sets of indicators yeah uh, and we work with each site to identify what will those measures be at the start yeah and then we look at those trends over the implementation period uh, mm. 
to see how they how they're impacted. Mm. So there's a number of metrics that yeah. come together. Yeah. yeah. Uh, similar to that sort of healthcare triple aims or quadruple aims. You know, could, quadru- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Mm. And um, when, when you see a successful uh, organization, one that's successful in patient experience, you know, what, what does that look like to you? What are, obviously, you have the, you know, some of the elements, but uh, is there anything that you, you sort of describe in your descriptor around a successful organization? I, well, this, this is how I would put it. You can walk in often to one of these hospitals that's done a really, really good job of implementing mm. person-centered care, yeah. and you can just feel it. Yeah. There's just something, and people have tried to describe exactly what this is. There's something different when you walk through the doors. It's more welcoming. Yeah. I, I think people tend are happier. More people are you know, make eye contact and smile and engage yeah. with you. Yeah. Uh, you know the signage is different. So I mean, we mm. look at the physical environment and yes. we encourage people to take down signs that have negatives that say "don't" or "not" mm. or "restricted." Okay. Uh, so just being very mindful about those subtle cues yeah. in the environment that human beings pick up on that. Yes. Uh, so there's there's probably less of that kind of signage and more welcoming, yeah. uh, you know, feel to the environment. Yeah. Uh, you know, a number of organizations, hospitals in particular that we work with, will have posted things like we welcome your family to be here. Mm. You know, we you know, want them to be with us. Talk with the nurse about having your family members stay over instead of. Yeah. Visiting hours end at 8 p.m. Yeah. and you must be out. So yes. I mean, just so there, there's that that reflection of the practices that are more open and affirming of the importance of families mm. uh, to be, you know, part of the experience with their with their loved one if they want to be. So it's a yeah. lot of these different things yes. all taken together, and that's why you, know, you look at our certification framework, mm. and you know, there's five drivers of excellence, there's mm. 26 areas of mm. emphasis, and then there's sort of sub things. So it's, yeah. it's a multi-pronged, it's a multi-pronged. approach because yeah. it's not simple. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that you can just feel it. That's one of the things that I notice when I, immediately when I come to reception and wait in the lobby and just observe how yes. people talk to the receptionist, yep. how the receptionist yep. talk to everybody else. Or just that eye contact, yes, and you already get a sense of culture. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, uh, straight yeah. up, absolutely. Yeah, very interesting. Um, last couple of questions, just around sustainability. You know, um, you know, we talked about multi-year process um, that you need to go through to sustain and build on. You know, more person-centered care. Um, what have you found effective in in sustaining that long-term change? Well, I I think that it's important to have mechanisms in place to ensure that the structures and the practices uh, and the policies that were put in place to begin with to support mm. a good foundation of, of person-centered care, that they stay vibrant. Yeah. And so, for instance, our certification is a three-year certification. Mm. It's not like a lifetime thing. Yeah. So we will send a team back to audit the environment. Mm. Uh, there are some reporting requirements around, you know, for instance, we asked to see the minutes from meetings of the Patient Family Advisory Council. Mm. So you, you, it, it's, not, uh, it's not the sort of situation where you can just do it, hit the mark, and then things yeah. let things erode. Mm. You've got to stay on top of things. You have to be vigilant. Yeah. 
And I think even having gatherings like this, like this conference, it gives people a chance to come together and to learn from their colleagues, yeah. how are you doing this? Yeah. And how do I take this to the next level? Because yeah. I think that's the other thing. It's not only about sustaining what you're doing. Because the world is changing so quickly, you can't stay where you're at. Yeah. You've got to continue to evolve all of these things as yeah. well. Yeah. And I think the best way to do that is to be a part of a community of practice yes. that's constantly challenging itself. Yeah. To do it better, to do it different, to keep it alive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things there. You know, one is, I suppose, in some ways, having a team or an external team to continuously review over a period of time the performance. Yeah. Um, sharing learnings with other organizations so you're right. continuously ahead of the game and being part of a community of yes. practice. Yeah. Um, uh, anything else that you, that you see that, you know, when you think about... I mean, certainly one of the things that I've seen is having almost the same CEO for five years or oh, ten years. <laughs> you yes, know? That, yeah. that's, that's one thing I've noticed. Um, yeah. have, you, have you noticed anything I, like that? As well? I, I would agree. Yeah, continuity in your leadership team mm. is very, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I will say there have been several times where we've sort of lost an affiliate when the CEO changes. Yes. New one comes in and says, oh, well... This is not my agenda, yes. so we're going to do something else now. Yes. Yeah, which is unfortunate. So you're right. Continuity in leadership is, well, it's helpful not only for patient-centered care and person-centered culture change. It's helpful for almost any quality improvement effort yeah, that you, right. keep, you keep on that pathway. Put so, on that pathway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think just the, the final message, just the, in terms of um, Australian healthcare more specifically, and, and, you know, you've been to Australia a number of times, mm-hmm. we, were, we were talking about, um, you know, what are the sort of two or three things that, you know, we should do more in Australia to, um, I suppose, advice that you would give in terms of how we would um, improve on our maturity in, in developing more person-centered care in Australia? What, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think, uh, again, one sort of simplistic answer would be to say, continue to use evidence-based practices and frameworks like the certification framework, whether people become certified or not, as a benchmark for yourself. So sort of continue to push on these different areas for development. And I I think the other is, I'll come back to Mm. my earlier statement, I really do believe that activated patients Mm. are the key to the future of our healthcare system Mm. and we can't do that if we don't share information with them. Mm. So whether it's through shared decision making or it's more transparency with their own medical information, which Mm. I I think technology is going to be a huge enabler of, uh, we just, you know, we've we've got to get uh, more uh, honest and upfront. With patients about what we can and what we can't do in healthcare, and what their role is mm. uh, in mm. their own care and well-being. You mentioned um, just building on that that you've seen in Australia. There's a lot of strength around involving patients and consumers in. Uh, right, you've got a whole sort of structure for consumers to be involved. I mm. believe both. Mm. Lo- I think at the local level, which is great, yeah. with the the hospitals and healthcare providers in their region, where they have a say in things and they can bring forward issues. Yes, and they've got, so they have a platform to be heard. Yes, and that's very unusual. Yeah, so I think right. Yeah, 
yeah. it's a, it's one of our standards mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, right. eight, eight or nine quality standards um, you know, one of the standards is around partnering with consumers yes. and so you have um, consumer committees yeah. uh, that, that sit and they, they have variable degrees of effectiveness uh, but they're there they're there and, yeah. you, you've got that I, yeah. I would say I mean the one thing about that mm. um, is refreshing those committees I think is essential right so it's you know Having the same person who maybe mm. had an experience ten years ago, okay, still sort of beating the same drum, I think can limit their effectiveness. So I like the idea of having a rotation plan right. for consumers and citizens that are on those types of groups, so that we're constantly getting sort of new input, people okay. who've had more, mm. you know, sort of real time experience with the healthcare system that often informs some of their thinking about where there's opportunities for improvement. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's important. And, and I don't know enough about the structures to yeah. say, but it's just it's my impression. And I yeah. think I think actually years ago mm. in the national health system in the UK, I think they had yeah. sort of what they now refer to as professional patients. Yeah. And there was a backlash because mm. they didn't do that kind of refreshment and and I think there was this sense of oh it's it's that same person complaining about the problem they had ten years ago right. and it's no longer relevant. Mm. So that I think is just an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, sort yeah. of the, the recency. Well, effect. What do you think is a, a healthy period of refreshing? Uh, I'd say every two to three years. Two to three years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's that's interesting. We're seeing some younger people coming to the system. You know, millennials and so yeah. on as well. They and they speak very articulately. Mm -hmm. um, they're you know very technology savvy, right. so they have expectations of yeah. um, of uh, of you know what they see in banking and retail, and it's like right. why don't I, why don't I why don't we it have it here? Yeah, yeah, in hospitals, absolutely. Yeah, which is really interesting thinking. So it's there's there's hope for the future. Oh yeah. Oh, I think so. I yeah. I mean I am very optimistic about the the good that technology can do in terms of empowering patients and consumers and healthcare consumers just in terms of the access to their own information, to mm. lots of information. Mm. Um, Do you see that the main thing is having access to their own medical records? or? or I think that's an important piece. Yeah. But I think also some of the technologies that help to interpret those things mm. for people. Because one of the challenges has always been the use of medical jargon yeah. in patient records. So a lot of people can't understand that. Right. Uh, but... You know, there. Are, I think there are apps now that help to translate that sort of thing into right. lay language. And I think the more we have those sorts of things, it levels the playing field. Right. Yeah. And I think okay. that is a really good thing. Would you have the names of the apps? Uh, uh, you know, not uh, specifically. Okay. Yeah, there's. Okay. I know there's something like three hundred thousand medical apps That's available right. today. That's right. So I know there are ones that you know there, you can sort of plug things in and they'll. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thanks very much. This covers all the questions I have. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Uh, um, let me see if there was anything, anything that else that I wanted to talk about. I mm. feel like I probably talked about most of those you things. covered a good breadth of different yeah. areas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that was probably... That was probably it. I think I hit all right. the high points that I wanted to make sure yeah. we talked about. So. Excellent. Well, yeah. thanks very much, Susan, for your time. You've been yeah, extremely generous. It's yeah. been a great conversation and, and lots of good points that uh, I'm sure not only um, some of the, the sort of leaders, managers and frontline um, uh, people in healthcare in Australia would 
would sort of enjoy and benefit from, but I think also around the world there'd be some uh, definitely some people that would you know take a lot of these points away and find them useful. Good, good. Yeah. That's that. That is success, then, right? That is. Yeah. Thanks very much, Susan. Appreciate yes. your time. You're welcome. Yeah.